0: Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I'm excited to have Sam Safe, CEO of Purpose. Sam is a well-known fixture in the Canadian financial sphere in that he has started and sold off financial institutions or started new ones We've numerous venture capital startups and some big names in Canada. And in addition to that, has, uh, is behind the launch of the first Bitcoin ETF and the first Tontine in, I believe, North America. So I brought him on to talk about his unique perspective and his history and uh, just have an open conversation about FinTech in general. And with that, here's my interview with Sam. Sam, thanks for taking the time. Great to be here, Jason. So Sam, safe of Purpose, tell us about Purpose and what it is you do.
1: So, Purpose is a really unique organization. It's a business that I started after I sold my first company, Claymore, to BlackRock. And I started it really with this kind of principal vision of where I saw the industry was going and where were the kind of parts of the business that I felt needed to kind of continue to be innovated. And, you know, we sort of saw a couple of important trends that I wished we had done previously at my previous company at Claymore and said, okay, I'm going to go, go do it again. And so, we are kind of our core focus is look, we're reinventing financial services in kind of four core areas. first is asset management. We have a really deep perspective on the asset management industry and the changes that are going on there, but it's not just trying to be a better money manager of trying to be benchmarks. you know I, you've heard me talk about this, but I spent a lot of time thinking about like how do we actually help people meet what their real goal is their outcomes like and liabilities and and think about risk management more as opposed to what the s and p 500 is doing. The second thing is really around uh, the future of uh, retirement and it's something that you highlighted at the outset, but we've been very focused on not just accumulation, but how do we help people decumulate and and think about the retirement journey, the experience of an individual as they approach retirement and, of course, into retirement, to end of life, and you know that's a very important journey that someone has to deal with. But financial services, for the most part, has somewhat ignored. The next uh, part is wealth management. We really believe in the the future of independence and wealth management and helping advisors who want to. Be independent, but also own their own practice and and really think and act like an owner in that sense uh, to support them uh, through technology. And then finally, is the small business owner, and you know, small business space. And and you know, look, nothing greater than what we've seen in through the pandemic as the importance of small businesses in our economy and our communities. But, you know, it's also one of the most unbanked or underbanked component of financial services. And we've just been very much inspired about changing that and helping small business owners get the support to unlock value and growth in their businesses. So, you know, purpose is really built around these areas. And and we're innovating and reinventing, the uh, w- way we say it, the business on behalf of those who are excited about tomorrow.
0: Excellent. Basically, you've had, like I said in the introduction, you've had an extensive history both in building financial institutions, selling them off, and now, A lot of what you discussed is basically being enabled through technological development. I want to come back to that. But first and foremost, I want to kind of step step outside of that role and talk about your venture capital history. Now, you've had uh, some pretty decent success in helping seed some startups in Canada. Can you care to share some of those stories and what it was, any one in particular that you thought was a unique opportunity that presented itself that you need to be a part of?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I wouldn't actually, I don't like to call myself a venture capitalist. I actually, I'm not a good venture capitalist. Is angel, is
0: angel the better term? Like, no, that not even want?
1: that. <laughs> um, you know, look, yeah. I have a vision for our industry and, you know, I have a very mm-hmm. deep thesis on the things that are happening and I get excited about those trends. And and as an operator, as an entrepreneur, there are parts of it that I want to solve for. So where I get really excited is when I can meet another individual or a founding team or a group of people that also have that same vision, and and I can say, you know what, I don't need to go do this. I can just support this, and I've done that a number of times. And you know, it sort of starts. It doesn't. Why I'm not a VC is because I'm not just capital. I really get engaged in forming and and developing the thesis and working together on. Kind of creating the, the long-term vision of that. And you know, that's something that is really important. And I and, and frankly, within purpose, we've done that now multiple times in our business. I mean, all the, the areas that I just talked about are are things that we incubated and built. But at the same time, outside of purpose, we've done it a number of times. So so of course, a big name would be something like Well Simple. And this was a business that Michael Catchon and I kind of came together and founded together. And you can put it as OIVC, but to me, it was sitting down um, saying, I, want, I think this is a really important part of the, the markets and we need to solve this and finding an individual who also had the same mindset and together creating what has been an amazing journey of a, of a platform. And you know, will my position be one of the real important challenger banks in this country? I mean, it would be the first real platform to challenge an RBC or a TD in what they do. And I think it's going to be an amazing area of growth. You look at something like Digit, which is also a really important technology that many probably people don't know about, but important. And it's at a time well, when- Former like, guests of
0: the podcast, they can go back and listen to us. So it's okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. Digit was uh, same thing. So I had a really deep thesis of the need for this really important middleware software within the wealth industry and saw that many uh-huh. of my friends, advisors, and money managers were really struggling with this component of their business. And also us a Purpose, we're building an infrastructure to support wealth advisors and recognize we didn't have this. And I said, you know, look, we need this. And so when, when Dan and the team walked in the room and said, hey, we're looking at something similar to this, I said, well, no, this is what we got to go do. And, you know, we'll fund it and, and back it and support it. And so, of course, now we've built a really important um, new innovation, not only for the Canadian wealth ecosystem, but also the North American and hopefully over time the global wealth or ecosystem. So this is the kind of way that I, I think it's like, it's kind of goes back to my other comment. I love deploying capital into ideas that I don't have to build sometimes myself because I've partnered with an unbelievable group of people who have a similar thesis and vision as I do. And that's when I get really good as an investor.
0: I'd uh, like you know, to say, you know, you're the kind of investor like, is you're the guy who sees the problem they want to fix for themselves on some level, as well as the rest of the industry. So that makes a lot of sense. And yes, uh, you know, both of those companies have been uh, kind enough to lend their time. And uh, Mike is supposed to come on the podcast at some point shortly. So we'll see how that goes. So, yeah, so that, not so much venture capitalists, but essentially your you know, your deep understanding of the industry has led you to basically understand those, see those, and, and just you're not looking to run it. You're basically looking to enable. What I would say is an impressive group of people, having known all of them, uh, some very, very bright, bright people in that in that group. So let's let's shift the focus back to purpose and some of the more innovative things you're, you've done. I mean, we can. I also want to touch upon uh, Purpose Advisor Solutions. We haven't talked about that in the pre-interview, but I would do want to give some some respect there. But prior to that, let's talk about the launch of the first Bitcoin ETF. Tell me about basically that was clearly an opportunity, right? And very smart to pounce on that. Tell me about the challenges that you faced in actually getting that to market.
1: Yeah, no. And and, and first I'll say, like, everything looks like an opportunity in retrospect that, that you got to pounce on. The key is to recognize which of those are the ones that you can solve for, right? And the way you way we always do it is we have a very deep understanding of our customer. We have a deep understanding of what our customer and their journey is and what they're trying to solve for and where the challenges and you know the, the gaps in, in their ability to solve for that. And we really kind of then tackle the gap. We really say, let let's go figure out how we can be the people who solve that, and there's a lot of uh, take. A, take an example of the high interest savings ETF. It was the first product we launched. You know, at, for one of the first things we did, purpose and a big innovation for the industry. And of course, you know, lots of subsequent copycats. But, but I always say that like that was not a simple problem to solve. It had a gap yeah. and it had to work really hard on being able to bring together a, a you know not a novel. Underlying with a the elegance of the ETF structure. And so one of the things we've always prided ourselves is we we solve these complex problems. So now liken it to um, the digital asset space. And so this is an area that I have been very passionate about. I got um very excited about it back in sort of 2017 time frame where I, you know, I have a I've talked about this publicly, but I, you know, was one of those guys in 2015, 2016 that was kind of talking negatively about Bitcoin being a scam and it's a waste of time. And then I kind of said, wait a minute, that's not me. I'm just copying somebody else's perspective. I usually would, you know, say those things. If I'm really gonna say something public, I should actually go and find out more. And I I immerse myself into the space and then frankly i was blown away by the opportunity because i could see as an operator what this could be what the technology could be and so it it led me to launch ether capital which was our way to basically get started in the space and start to kind of formulate a long term view on it which then gave us an advantage and an opinion on what was happening at the time it was happening and so what that of course came down to is last year in 2020 we approached the regulators to solve for this problem of how do we bring in people access to a secure and efficient way to use and invest into bitcoin which they weren't currently having the opportunity to do so and of course the regulator had certain opinions and structures and we had to do a lot of work to convince them and that's one stream that we had to solve for and i think we worked really hard over about 8 months to solve that problem second we had to solve for the infrastructure the pipes to enable a daily liquid traded security like an etf to be able to uh-huh. invest into a digital asset that has instantaneous settlement that is you know, not custodied in a traditional way and has very unique elements and, and restrictions for a lot of our market makers and things like that. So you know, we had a lot of things to solve along that way, and we did that in a unique way. And of course, there were others that kind of piggyback off what we did. And we're happy with that. That's the way I, I mean, you know, can talk about my philosophy of changing industries is that you lead the way and others will copy you. You can't change it all by yourself. And so we were very, very excited about getting this. And, and I think what we've created is and not only a really important solution for the Canadian marketplace, but a global product. I mean, we've got investors all around the world using this thing now, uh, investors all around the world talking about it. And what we've catalyzed is, of course, the conversation with the SEC and with others that are all talking about now, OK, if they can do it, if they can prove that a, an ETF with, a, with underlying a Bitcoin or Ethereum actually can be done and done efficiently without market movement and manipulation, why can't we? And I think that that's that's really driving the change of the conversation from where it was a year ago. Yeah, the Canadians could figure
0: this out. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, but that said, I mean, it's, sorry, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, no, I mean, it's it is funny. We actually get a lot of positive applause, uh, you know, kind of praise for how we have innovated within the structured product space, and so our regulators mm-hmm. are seen as as positive partners in this Mm -hmm. on a global scale. So, you know, I think there's a lot of lot to learn. When you have a good relationship with the regulators, they want to, they want to solve for problems like this. They're just looking for good partners and good people to basically work with to to solve them alongside of you. And and it goes to the stuff we've done on the longevity side as well, which is the same problem. And and, you know, we were the first in the world to do it. But like it's a really important thing that you got to work with your regulators to do so. And and I think in other jurisdictions, regulators don't have, or I'd say industry doesn't have the same relationship with
0: regulators. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting. My experience with the regulators is, is, I'd say, not as extensive as yours, but similar in that they get a lot of blame for saying no, but more often than not, they get approached by people with no plans who just like say, I want to do this. And it's like, well, no. Well, okay, here's a better idea. They're willing to listen if you're willing to work with them, to show them the way. Because I mean, you think they get, you think they, they like saying no to everything? Of course not. They, they want to see innovation and things change. So working with them hand in hand, I think our jurisdiction, we've been very fortunate that we have a very open very open regulatory framework has led to some interesting things like what you've done. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's amazing how many people kind of look at me cross-eyed when I basically start defending the regulators in that regard, but it is what it is. And again, the Bitcoin, I'm not surprised you you basically brought in all the attention worldwide simply because I remember when I first <laughs> learned about Bitcoin, I'm saying I'm gonna say it was probably around 2010 because I had some friends into it early. And they're like, yeah, you know, it's it's uh it's doable. You just got to get your own rig and do all this other like it was like here's all the 12 steps you got to take that are all complicated in order to do this. And just like I'm out, right, like I regret that now, mind you, but it's just like if you're going to make this thing mainstream, the cognitive burden required, an implementation burden required in order to do it, is going to basically have to be reduced, and that's what you did. And not surprised, like you, the challenges you faced, you know, what you weren't about to use a crypto. A Custod- standard crypto custodian normally, because the, the, if you want to set up an ETF, that's easy. The existing structures in, in custody were there already. You have to figure out how to make these two worlds talk to each other. And that is, people think that's simple. It's, they can't imagine the number of technical issues you have to deal with. In
1: that well, well, and and you know, to, to your point, it's not only you have to bring two worlds together, but guess what? The thing that has always inspired me is which world is going to win in the long run. And what I say to industry folks is if you don't have a thesis in this area or on innovation technologies and such, you are going to sit back and go backwards. If I look at the ETF, what what kind of blew my mind back in 2016, 2017 was... I saw a world where I had been searching from the start of building purpose. I said, look, ETFs were really important innovation, but there will become a day. And and by the way, you know, so let me say they were important innovation, but they were not developed by the incumbents. It wasn't developed by the fidelities of the world and the CIs of the world and the, you know, the, the players that were in the mutual fund industry. It was developed by the outsiders, the wisdom trees, the claymores, the power shares, the investor, like which basically is now VESCO—but like these players who were peripheral players who were looking on the, from the outside in, saying, "Hey, we can do this better." So now we look at the ETF industry, and they were, you know, seen as the innovators for the last twenty years, and 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 now everyone's an ETF player. Well, who's going to reinvent ETF 2.0 or three or whatever it is? It's, guess what? It's not going to be the ETF players. It's going to be the outsiders, and so. What I have always said, and when I started Purpose, is I'm not going to be an insider who gets eaten. I'm going to be an outsider who eats ourselves. And so I'd been tasking the team for a long time is what's going to be ETF 2.0? What is it going to be? And frankly, when I saw it with tokenization, I said, this is going to be it. Now it's not there yet, but I said, this is going to be it. And that's why I said, I need to be a part of it. So, yes, retrofitting digital asset tokens into a traditional finance vehicle like ETFs. Sounds It's very complex. But what really is the thing that I love about it is I'm now learning more and more deeply the tokenization of things. And that's where the future is going to be. And over the next 10 years, many ETF players who think today that they have the corner of the market, they're the they're the growers, are going to be obsolete or redundant. And I said this, Jason, if you remember, there was an article that came out in 2018. And I said this publicly. I got criticized for it. And I said, ETFs will become redundant one day. And the number of industry players who said, oh, that's never going to happen. And I said, just you got to have an open mind to the change." But we're
0: seeing it already. Like, here's we're seeing the early signs of tokenization. Absolutely. One of them direct indexing and fractional ownership of shares. Right. Like, congratulations. You don't need an ETF if you can basically redesign a a, a, with a very small sum of money and through the through uh, fractional share ownership, redesign any index on demand. Like 100%. this is 100%. so it's already there. Like the debt stroke, it's just you know we're in the early innings of replacing ETFs as a, as a as a product altogether.
1: But I want to go on that point a little bit. So let me give you some mind thought that I have, I go through. So I remember many years ago I saw Motifs, and if you've ever heard of Motifs, they were a product that was designed around self indexing principles of baskets uh, that you could buy from a broker dealer. And so when I saw Motifs, I said. This is going to be one of those things that, once done right, if effective, and the technology is there, they could replace the ETF structure. Why? The whole concept of why mutual funds and ETFs are successful is because you were able to take a micro precision decision, like so separate accounts and, and buying stocks and everything like that, and make it into a the benefits of scale through my, macro pooling. So pooling is a very powerful thing because you get everyone to basically share in the costs and costs are therefore on a a unit economic basis, very low. And so by able to do that, it's very powerful. But what I always said was if technology could improve on the separate account side, and you could get the technology to allow and enable you to get the same economics of pooling, but at the individual level, well, by and far, that's a much more superior thing because you can customize to the individual goals, taxes, things like that. The problem we had was the archaic systems of the infrastructure, the broker-dealer, whether you're on a discount account like a warehouse or, Really? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Unit economics weren't there. And so I said, we have to change that. And so hence, well, simple. Well, simple was all around this idea that like, let's change the back end of this business. Let's change the principles of how you think about unit economics of how you manage money for the smallest account possible. Can we make money for an account that has 10,000 or $20,000 on it? Because the industry believed no. The industry believes that people who have little money make no money for them. So they charge them a shitload of money. Sorry if I can use that on on air or not. And frankly, they're the worst. They're treated the worst in our industry. And I said, that doesn't make sense. I said, people who have little money are just getting started. We should treat them really well by getting our economics right and technology right. And so that was the principle underpinning. And if we could fix that, now you can start to reimagine the way you deliver solutions to the marketplace.
0: I'm laughing and chuckling while we're doing this because this is one of my classic rants about the problem with the industry is not that we can't serve. This entire small clients aren't profitable. I'm like, no, no, they're profitable. The problem is not profitable with your centers right? If you reinvent your call, your process, distribute value at those lower levels of investable assets or change the model of billing altogether, congratulations, it's suddenly profitable. I'm not sure if you're familiar with XYPN in the US, uh, but they're the pioneers of retainer-based planning. And guess what? Like They're Advisor books are much smaller on average than the average um, than the average advisor, sort uh, average wirehouse or RIA. But the, I've seen their compensation studies; they're pretty damn good, quite honestly. So um, again, it's it's. I always get and actually because we're in Canada, I'll go on this rant. I always get so frustrated. Recently, we we banned deferred sales charge. Finally, said that is it's over. And the number of arguments I got into online with people still saying, how are young advisors going to survive? Like, the, you know, we can't possibly do this. It's like, you're looking at through the through the lens of the past of how we used to do things with the cost structures and the economies of scale that we had then. And you refuse to even imagine a universe where something is different. And if we can actually start to bring down the cost distribution, then that becomes an option. Anyway, let's not get lost on, on our, our shared personal beliefs. Well, in I would just regard. say, I'd just I, say
1: one other thing on that, Jason, is that, and it's not just the financial services industry but it's big business and oftentimes but in in our industry it really is a problem the problem we face is that the industry thinks on average economics we don't have, we never did unit economic modeling. And that's 101. If you did economics in school or, or, you know, business in school or whatever, you would have learned, you need to understand unit economics. But in our business, it's been average economics. And the reason is because the margins have been so darn good for the industry. And on average, they make good money. So they don't think of it. So the assumption then is smaller customers make me less money than larger customers on average. And so therefore, they just basically price things that way. Whereas I've just disagreed with that. I disagree with that. And I said if you, you know, you can't sell a widget without knowing how much it costs to produce that widget. Otherwise, there's a high likelihood you'll go bankrupt. So my view is, let's get to the understanding of the unit economics of the business. Let's get those unit economics to be extremely precise. This is what made me successful with Claymore. Like what allowed us to build a business that was scaled but at 45 basis points and still make 50% margins on the business was because we understand the cost structure whereas a CI was making 2x the top line revenue but had the same margins. Why? Because they bloated their infrastructure. They didn't understand this. So if you get your unit economics right, you can actually do a phenomenal job of building the service level or offering of what you're going to offer on top of that, and the pricing goes with it.
0: Well, this is classic disruption theory, right? This is right out of Clayton Christensen's basic wheelhouse, which is, you know, you take the ones that everybody thinks is not, the, the part of the market that everybody thinks is not profitable, you find a way to make it profitable, then the unit economics just become substantially better for the upper end of the, of the market, right? And it's amazing. It never ceases to amaze me how few people in this industry read that. And I also will commend you on one other thing in terms of your vision for looking for the thing that could depose you, which they'll go back to the entire Steve Jobs quote, when people ask him about cannibalizing his own product, he's like, "If I'm going to be cannibalized. I want to be the one cannibalizing my own product, not someone else, right? So, you know, <laughs> never, you know, basically be a little bit paranoid is the, the real message. And that keeps you alive. So um, at the risk of going down that rabbit hole even further, let's, let's switch uh, over to a non-technology solution, but one that is, I would say, of monumental importance in the, in the future of, the, of financial ecosystem. You guys recently launched, I think it's the first commercially available tontine or one of the first commercially available tontines in the world. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would argue that every pension plan, every insurance company is a tontine. So I, I you know, it's a different story. It's but just, I,
0: well, yeah,
1: sure. this is the first. This is the first time we've ever used. A, call it longevity risk pooling into a fund that's available for everybody. And so that's exactly right. And 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 you know, tontines from a structural perspective are ultimately designed around that. And we took the flavors of what tontines are done. You you how they're structured, and uh, of course the reverse engineered how a pension plan you know underwrites its long term goal. And an insurance company underwrites annuities, and we designed what I'd been solving, trying to solve for, from the day I started. Purpose, which was a income for life solution uh, for the masses.
0: Yeah, and just to give people some background on that, basically a tontine is basically an annuity where the risk is held by the group of people, not by a third-party institution. So you're not ensuring the risk, you're sharing the risk. And you guys have done a clever little structure for this. I'm going to hopefully write a paper on this shortly. Anyone wants to learn more about the history of these things, I will recommend King William's Taunting by a former professor of mine, a friend, uh, Moshe Molesky, and absolute aficionado on this subject. So you'll learn a lot there. But in general, it is an interesting option now within the retirement landscape in that is a product whereby I do not need to give up my money in order to benefit from mortality credits. Being other people passed away, some benefit accrues to me, and that is that. It's a unique challenge because what you've done is you've created almost an insurance product without any without any insurance. It's uh, well well done.
1: Exactly, that's exactly right. I mean, to me, what we've done is we've disintermediated the financial institution, and by mm-hmm. doing so we've given back to the individuals who are in the pool the benefit of the structure and what the benefit is. And and, and this is the thing that people really get lost in. They assume that, let's say, with an insurance company, because there's a guarantee, that that, that's really what I want. When in fact, what they're doing is asymmetrically giving up a significant amount of the value for that guarantee. And by taking people and taking the institution out, you can structurally and implicitly get the same base downside risk, what yet with a significantly greater upside by sharing. and it's just a powerful principle. as we move into Jason, you know this world over the last five, seven years where the sharing economy has become much more focused, it really gives you the ability to start to think about what if I disintermediate? What if I take the agency out of things? What can we do? And I don't see this as any different than Airbnb or, Uber, or any of the players that are really trying to do the same thing broadly.
0: I mean, it's almost a DeFi product, except it's not being run on crypto without an institution. You're the one not backing it. (laughs) And it's an interesting side note. I once, um, at the IFID conference years ago, uh, Don Ezra, I believe, was the one who brought this this study. I wish I could find the study. But there was some sort of study done in the US on uh, single premium immediate annuities. And the finding was that about the expected payout on a single premium annuity purchase was about 97%. Now, that makes sense. Because you're giving an insurance company a lump sum of money in return for an income stream in return. And you have to expect that for that uh, for that risk that they're taking on, they're going, there's going to be a charge. So the person who was buying annuity on average was not going to make money. Now, that said, if you were on the far end of this, if you were the ones who lived beyond life expectancy, of course, you made money. In some cases, dramatic amounts of money. The difference here, and I got to run the numbers on this, you've invented a, or created a solution Whereby the mortality credits, nothing's guaranteed. You still benefit to, to, from from people who leave the pool, but at the same time, there's I'm getting, you're you're getting those kinds of benefits with a positive expected rate of return on average, as opposed to what the single premium annuity would have done.
1: That's exactly right. And and to just go through the economics of what you just talked about, like there's a pool of capital that is sitting there. So yes, they get ninety seven cents, but there's and you can say there's a charge of three cents. But the reality is, Uh on top of that, there's all the value that's created on that pool of capital before it's paid out. And that crews the institution. Now, what we've done is we've taken all that and accrued, not only have we cut out the three cents, but we've also taken all the value of that pool of capital and made the return go back to the pool's beneficiaries. So, you're getting a what's really important the way we've designed this is. To generate the 6.15 plus yield that we have for everybody, we actually only need to generate a 3.7% yield return on the portfolio Mm -hmm. to actually generate that. And that, that gap is the mortality credit that goes to the benefit. So you can run a very conservative policy structure and still achieve a phenomenal yield return on behalf of everyone to match a common goal. And what you're doing is you just do it by bringing... Like minded goal oriented people, which is we want to solve for mm. income for an indetermined time period. I don't know if I'm going to live 20 years or 50 years, but by bringing everyone together, everyone gets their income for life to match their exact moment of life. And then you just, the other thing we did was we provided the ability that you never lose your capital, so you always get your capital back that you didn't didn't get paid out to.
0: No, it's fantastic. Now, that was a sidetrack from the fintech side. Let me move over to another of your ventures that basically does this very technologically enabled. And hearing your kind of unit economics philosophy, I now kind of understand a little bit more where your thinking was on this. But talk to me about uh, Purpose Advisor Solutions, which is basically your kind of, for lack of a better term, it's it's your version of a TAMP in Canada. For those who aren't familiar with that term, I'll link to some some information. But it's your version of a TAMP in Canada to help enable independence to basically service clients. Tell me how, where that what the thinking was behind that, and how you're solving the unit economics problem with technology.
1: Yeah so so it's actually a, a extension of the work we just did I just talked about on Well Simple. So Well Simple was really designed around you know that individual at the earliest stage of their journey getting involved in financial services when they have very little money and how they're going to basically go on this journey with them. And so you're, they're looking for a well-structured portfolio. They're looking for experience, looking for a firm to basically give them the right discipline structure of experience exposure. But as you know, there's a significant amount of the population that needs advice. And that's not in the twenties and thirties it's in, it's when you get into your 35, 40, 45, 50, when you're actually getting more complexities, you're getting closer to retirement or 20, 30 years from retirement, there's a significant amount of need for, you know, customized advice. And so I'm a big believer in advisor role in the, in, the, in the ecosystem the value that 80% of Canadians need advice. The reality of it though is that advisors I love I love them but they're you know they don't um, own their own businesses oftentimes. And I believe in this future where an advisor can be an enterprise can own their own practice can be thought of as the a small business or medium sized owner of the the practice and accrue the value from that and so you know we needed to build the infrastructure to support the complexities of advice and providing advice but we also needed to give a home an environment where advisors could actually be the owners of their own businesses. And I'm a, I've had this thesis for some time that we're going to see a movement towards independent advice in this country, and that advisors are going to break away from their traditional financial institution and want to become independent. And so we wanted to enable it. And so what PAS does, actually, you know, what I'd say is the TAMP is a component of what we do, but the core of the offering is an, a wealth as a service infrastructure that enables any advisor to basically start and run their whole business, kind of like what Shopify does for e-commerce. We do for the advisor industry to enable them to become their own their own owner. Excellent.
0: No, it's a thesis I share and I've written about on multiple occasions. And another classic example of bloated large infrastructure is preventing advisors from servicing people, and, and that's actually on a Uh, sidetrack, one of the problems is that when you're giving 50% of the house, you need very, very large clients and a lot of them to make the kind of money you wanna make. The problem is is that you can't handle more than X number of client relationships, you can call between 50 to 100 on any kind of really, truly deep level if you're gonna provide really comprehensive advice and ongoing service. And the current model is just not conducive to that, whereas something that you built with the much lower overhead and that will enable uh, people to act like entrepreneurs is far more conducive to creating that reality.
1: Well, and and you know, look you you said it right. I mean, the game that um, the big institutions are playing is that they're giving advisors the cash flow. They're giving them 50 cents on the dollar and saying, "Hey, you you keep the cash flow. Will keep the enterprise value. And that's the game. And, and as you know, the enterprise value is a very valuable, there's a multiple on cash flow. So what's happened is that many advisors make a very good income, they make a very nice life, and they're living off the cash flow, thinking that, like, I'm the self-proprietor here. And I look at it the other way, which is no, no, you got to, you wanna own the asset, you wanna own the enterprise. And so that's one component. The second component of it is we are moving into a world of More closed architecture, proprietary thinking. The advisors, the firm wants to circumvent the advisor more and more, and they want to own the customer directly. And so it's moved from this kind of model of, I'm okay with this relationship where you control the client and we just kind of give you the house to sit on and we keep the asset to now saying, no, I want to own that customer because I want the relationship with that customer to cross sell them other products. I want to have a deeper relationship with them and understand them. And so I want you to move from a, I call it a partner in the business to being an employee and everything they're doing is driving that type of thinking. And so I've had this thesis for a while that for a lot of advisors, that's okay. It's still great income. It's great lifestyle. But for many advisors who are long-term nature, enterprise-minded They're going to want to own their own business. They're going to want to break away from that that sort of that 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 flock. And, And I think you know we wanted to enable that. If you look at the United States, and you mentioned the RIA channel, I mean it's it's this is what happened 20 years ago in the United States, and it's really accelerated in the last 10. But the amount of value that has been created and unlocked on behalf of the advisors who now own their businesses has been tremendous. It's tremendous.
0: I'd i also hope. say that the evolution of those practices to being far more planning-centric and, and, exactly. and service oriented has been inspiring when you look at it from
1: the I couldn't agree with more because the problem we have is that advisors generally will gravitate to the center of gravity of their business being money management, whereas a customer ultimately wants a holistic planning center of gravity. And I always say this, most advisors, when you're running, let's say, half a million, a million, $2 million clients, $3 million clients, that client will give you all their money. But when you are actually dealing with clients who have more money, 10, 20, 30 million, if you have a center of gravity of your business exclusively based on money management, they will only give you a portion of their wealth. Whereas if you have a center of gravity in your business, that is a more holistic planning mentality, they will give you all of it. You will support the holistic plan of their family. And so my view is if you want to be a true high net worth advisor, you want to have a planning mentality to truly engage the entire balance sheet of a customer as opposed to just a component of their money that you're managing for them.
0: You are preaching to the choir, my friend. So before we wrap up, and this has been great, thank you for this. There are three questions I asked everybody before we finish up Then end of the positive note. The first one is, if you had one wish for something to change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be?
1: I don't think I'd change this in the company because I think we have this. I, I wish the company would think about the customer at the heart, uh, sorry, the industry would think of the customer at the heart of its business. And, and you know, I, I, I think that one of the challenges, if I was starting Royal Bank today, and I'd hope that they would say the same thing is if you were starting that business again, you would start with your customer at the center, the journey of the customer, and then build all of the platform product and experiences around that customer journey. Unfortunately, large institutions and financial institutions are driven by product and P&Ls. And so I would, I would change that. And I think if if we do that, and, and that's what my mission is exclusively, I think at Purpose, we do this really, really well. That said, I'd love to see more of that in our industry.
0: Once again, agreed. Second question for you. What's been the biggest challenge? I'd say, you normally know, it's about a story about one company. Like your you're one company, what's the biggest challenge you can do where you are today? But what's the biggest challenge that Slam Safe himself has faced in his career?
1: 2020, 2020, uh, look, I've, I've gone through, this is, everyone looks at entrepreneurship and and celebrates You know, someone once they've had all these successes and and thinks that it's easy. You know, I can tell you right now, it's never been easy. I don't do this because of money or whatever. I, I do this because I just love I love the challenge. I love what we're doing. I love the innovation. I love how we can drive things. That said, like complex problems are along the way. And I'll give you an example. 2020 was the hardest year of my career. By the time I said at the outset what we do, and we have three really important businesses and now four inside of purpose. But one of our businesses, I might mean, say all of our businesses faced many different challenges through March and April. One of our businesses is this, in a small business space, and we're innovating on behalf of small business owners. And, and, and I'll tell you, it was as much as the markets, the capital markets have looked very good and continue to look good right now and and good tailwinds, the small business community is still hurting, and uh, you know we had to fight through that environment, the lack of support that the government and and the industry was there to you know be a part of, and and of course uh, the immediacy of that impact. And I think we did a phenomenal job of fighting through it, while also balancing lots of other challenges like human human capital problems of you know I meaning having to balance all of the issues of, of the pandemic itself. So it was one of the hardest years of my career, and the real stress of building a unbelievably diverse platform came out on its own.
0: You walked away from it. So like it says. Any, any crash you can walk away from. So you get one, but uh, you survive and I'm sure you're going to thrive with it going forward. And the last question, and I'm sure this is going to be an interesting one, what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps you, and you already kind of semi-answered this, but keeps you getting up every morning to keep on fighting the good fight?
1: I love what I do. I truly get excited every day because there's two core components. One is unbelievable people around you. That you get to share and debate and discuss and, and really drive a common vision for the future of this industry. And my people inspire me every day. And being around people like Mike Catchin and, and you know, all the people of Ports of Purpose and, and you know, they're awesome. Like they're just great people to be around. Second thing I would just say is I really love our customers. And I don't mean that, you know, in a facetious way or whatever. I, I truly love spending time with our customers. I am anyone who knows me. I am probably one of the only CEOs that actually gets on the road and sees advisors as often as I can. Before the pandemic, I was on the road every month, multiple times across this country. Why? Because I love listening to advisors. The richness of the conversations that they're my friends But the richness of the conversations and the information that I capture from those conversations to go home and innovate with is powerful. And everything we've done as an organization is because problems arise from talking to our customers. And whether that is small business owners, whether that is advisors, or whether that is consumers, we're doing everything we can to solve problems for them. And they tell us what their problems are. It's our job to digest it. So that's something that really drives me every day. And I really love spending time in the marketplace with our customers.
0: Fantastic, Sam, this has been great. Thank you so much for the time. And thank you for what you're doing to push this industry along because God knows it needs a push. So uh, once again, sincerely appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Jason. It's a great chat and love to chat anytime.
0: And that was this week's episode of FinTech Impact. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you take the time to check out some of uh, Sam's various ventures. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever is in your podcast. Until next time, take care.